From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, towards a feminist foreign policy. It's Friday, March 8th, International Women's Day. The idea of International Women's Day is over a century old, but it was officially adopted by the United Nations on March 8th, 1975. That day, there were rallies throughout the world. Hundreds marched, calling for a range of social reforms. In New York, the marches were young and old, black, white, brown, and yellow, and there were many men walking along beside them. The tone was a mixture of militants and a confident assertion of a feminine idea whose time at last may have come. Among the prominent Where were we then? In the U.S., it was three years before the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978, four years after Roe v. Wade, three years after Title IX. In the 40-odd years since, progress has been made. But if the Me Too movement showed us anything, it's that women are still disempowered in many fields. And that includes foreign policy. One of the countries trying to address the issue is Sweden. Sweden has become the first nation in the world to have a feminist foreign policy. In In 2014, Sweden issued a call for an explicitly feminist foreign policy. That meant focusing on rights, representation, and resources. The three so-called R's. On First Person this week, I sat down with Sweden's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Margot Wallström, the woman who popularized the idea of a feminist foreign policy in 2014 and continues to advocate for it around the world. Minister, thank you so much for coming in. So let's begin in 2014, 2015, and the idea of a feminist foreign policy. How did you come to the decision that this would be a trademark issue? I think... uh My own experience actually played into uh, this uh, because I had also come from um, uh, a job as special representative of the Secretary General of the UN uh, working uh, on sexual uh, violence in war and conflict. And that, of course, left me with a heavier heart, but also paradoxically with more hope for the future because I could see how these women uh, insist on having a role for themselves, of course, in their local communities, but also in their countries, and that they can be also peace builders and peacekeepers. And also my political experience has shown that and taught me that women definitely have a very important role to play when it comes to peace and security in this world. So to me, it's not a women's issue. It's really a peace and security issue. And that's why it belongs also to the foreign policy. And then it was a matter of choosing sort of a a name or creating a concept or a title. And I decided to call it a feminist foreign policy and I know that this has a negative connotation in some, or at least a controversial uh, name in, in some countries, but I think it was a good thing because we have a chance to explain what feminism is and what this means. And to me, it was about defining it via the parameters of rights. Do women enjoy the same rights, uh, legal and human rights, as men? Secondly, the representation, so that's the second R. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they around the table where important decisions are being made? Are they represented? And thirdly, resources. Um, so budgetary and other means are they used to cover the needs of girls and women around the world. So it's nothing um, 
mysterious about this. It's really uh, something very practical, a practical tool. And through our embassies around the world, this is what we do. We check along those uh, parameters. These three R's that you... Yeah. And the three R's are rights? The rights, representation, and resources. When you first advanced this, what was the reception internally, domestically? Um... I, I think that maybe there were some, you know, I used to quote uh, Gandhi who said that uh, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And I think this is maybe what happened here as well. They tried to say, well, what is this? Why do you choose such a, a name for it? And we've done these things before, but we haven't called it a, f- a feminist uh, policy. But I must say that it very quickly turned into enthusiasm. Also, I would say among our uh, staff in, you know, our embassies around the world and people who work on these issues. And again, to me, we could see it when we served two years on the UN Security Council, how important it was that this was our starting point. So we insisted on having women as briefers, that their voices are being heard. We insisted on the language in resolutions or presidential statements or conclusions, you know, from meetings, that women are being acknowledged and mentioned and that their needs are looked after. So, and I think this will change the world, but we also did the things like a network of women mediators and negotiators. We had 15. conflict resolution. Well, we appointed sort of Swedish uh, uh, women in a network of mediators, and they are now deployed to different conflict situations around the world to help, because very often there wouldn't be any women as mediators or negotiators. And it's important to make sure that there are. And now there are many of these networks Uh, Nordic Women's Network of Mediators, but also internationally, and they work together. There was a moment really early on where there was tremendous pushback from Saudi Arabia for comments you made. Do you want to narrate for us what happened? Uh, Well, this was, of course, a debate that followed a decision that we took to end a military agreement on cooperation with Saudi Arabia but also a debate about, uh, you remember that there was a blogger, a flogging of, of a blogger in, in Saudi Arabia, and that caused a lot of, of debate. And in a debate in the parliament, I said what I thought about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a pushback from and a strong reaction from uh, Saudi Arabia. I think it also had to do with the fact that we... We had, as you know, recognized Palestine. And I think that that also gave us a a position and others would listen to us, so to say, also in the Arab world. And when I then was invited to speak to the the League of Arab States on the meeting in Cairo, the Saudis made sure that I could not speak. So I think they were afraid. What do you mean they made sure you couldn't speak? I was invited (laughs) by the president, but uh, they uh, stopped me from speaking at that event. So it was a strong reaction. So we had to use sort of all our diplomatic tools to make sure that this was sort of both corrected, but at the same time not make excuses for what we said, because we stand on firm ground of believing in both democracy and human rights. And uh, that is what we had to insist on. 
Sweden plays an interesting role, obviously, because you are also hosting peace talks and intermediary conversations between the United States and North Korea. Can you narrate exactly how this fits into that role as well? I think that there is a long tradition of Sweden playing such a role in diplomacy and also as an honest broker in in, in many situations. I think that also serving two years on the Security Council, I think we have demonstrated that we act as a good partner, that we uh, believe in talking with the countries, not only about them. Uh, so we've been... I think establishing ourselves as somebody that they can have confidence in and believe that we don't have a hidden agenda. We are not a military threat to anyone. We are militarily non-aligned. We are sort of an open and democratic country. And we believe in diplomacy. We believe in in multilateralism and, and cooperation and peaceful solutions to conflicts. So you might have to ask sort of the parties to these conflicts why they chose us. But also when it comes to North Korea, we have a very long diplomatic presence uh, in North Korea among the first. Uh, so we know them fairly well. and we have. Uh, You've served as an interlocutor for Americans yeah. when they've been held captive. Yeah, exactly. All of these conflicts are intractable. Yemen, North Korea, even the Israel-Palestine conflict. How does that end up affecting your role? Um, I think you cannot give up. And it's interesting that sort of now we opened our embassy in Pyongyang in the 70s. And maybe only now has that really given sort of a result in that they see us, they have known us for all these years. And they know that they can trust what we say. They know that we try to We have one thing uh, as our major objective, and that is to make sure that there is a peaceful solution. And also, of course, we want them to not arm themselves with nuclear weapons, uh, and we need to stop that. We want them to uh, experience peace uh, as well. So they know us, and we know them fairly well uh, also. We have provided humanitarian assistance. We have gotten to know sort of the country and now it can come to use which is also interesting sometimes you have to have a long-term perspective i'm curious about that long-term perspective going back to the saudi arabia incident which is you also made a statement about women driving which of course has now somewhat shifted although there are women incarcerated still in saudi arabia did you feel that it was a lonely stance at the time I've, I must say that I've had, um, maybe never, never before and never after, have I had so many strong reactions, both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And I think to us it was important that we sort of stood by our position, but at the same time we want diplomatic relations, also with Saudi Arabia. We need that. We need to be able to talk to each other. And we, we restored that sort of relation. Um, How long did that take? No, it didn't take very long, which was a good thing. Um, so we enjoy those diplomatic uh, relations and we can talk to each other and we can, we must then now and then agree to disagree. But it's always better when we, we know where we have our positions, but we can argue. They uh, know what to expect from us and we will continue that dialogue. And that is important. But I, I, I got so many positive reactions from around the world that uh, I've never seen anything like it. So it was... uh, Can you describe one? 
No, but people would send emails and uh, and make comments on Twitter or send letters or flowers and everything. And I think it was just something that had built up over a long time also. And they felt that nobody dared to to say anything in the open. And uh, at the same time, I think that the opposition at home, of course, where they were critical because they feared that we would lose um, commercial uh, opportunities and so on. And I I say nothing happened, actually, in the end. What does it mean to advance a feminist foreign policy in the era of Donald Trump? It has been difficult because we used to work together, the European Union and the U.S., on these issues, on women's rights. Do you feel you've lost a partner? In some ways, yes. On some issues, definitely. And also, I would say... On in the bigger picture of um, supporting and working with multilateralism as an idea of how to solve problems and help each other. Um, for example, that we will have to deal with issues like uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights. And when uh, President Trump uh, decided to withdraw from funding such activities, then we compensated. We rallied other countries that share our views on this because it saves lives. You're referring to the global gag rule? Yeah. So when when that was uh, introduced, we sort of compensated uh, the money that is needed for UNFPA, for example, for all their activities. Can Help. Sweden fully step in, though? And take the place of the United States? No, not not like that, but we did it with other countries. I think we had like 19 countries that uh, joined us in making sure that we compensate uh, with the budget and continue to support those activities because they are so important around the world. And I think we will have to continue on those issues uh, very clearly. I think we can do more on economic activities that women can, you know, open a bank account, they can start a business, they can feed a family and themselves also uh, through economic activities or running a business. Um, And that's also important. And I think I would say violence against women is uh, maybe a third theme where I see we have a lot in common with with the U.S. and where they would be interested, I, I think, in supporting which countries do you look to now that you feel are similar models? I mean, Sweden is still the only country to have a specifically feminist foreign policy. Well, these days, actually, Canada has also announced that they have a feminist foreign policy. I think France has also um, sort of moved in that direction. So I th- I see an enormous interest, and uh, this is the question I get most often. And I'd like to explain that this is a practical thing and that it, it really means something for Uh, world peace and security. And I think it became very clear in the Security Council also that um, member states and and all those uh, countries represented also on the Security Council understood that it's true. We know from research that if women are there around the table when peace deals are negotiated, there will be more options on the table and those peace agreements will last much longer. So more women means more peace. And we know that for a fact. So uh, I think we can say that we have also anchored it firmly on the UN's agenda. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see, for example, when we now have left that uh, Germany will take over and run with this agenda as well, the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Sweden has a new government. 
which took a long time to seat the prime minister again. Will this feminist foreign policy continue now? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> was it ever a question? Sweden has... No, I don't think so. No. Not, but no, it was not. I think that we all see it as as a success or something that we can be proud of. I think the interest it has raised, I think the results we can point to, the fact that we have a handbook for, because I mean, there is a lot to read about the proper results mm -hmm. as well. So we can speak for it and we can be proud of it. Tell us a little bit more about the Women, Peace and Security resolution in the UN so that my listeners can understand better what's taken place. You know, for 15 years, the Security Council has decided that the women, peace, and security theme must be part of, of everything they do, that women have a particular role to play, both in peace and war. And one thing that has come after the first resolution that was passed acknowledging this was really to see how sexual violence has been used as a weapon of war or a war strategy. And that that has to be treated as a war crime, that it has to be mentioned, that it has to be followed up, that it has to, that the perpetrators have to be also found and accountability has to be uh, created for those uh, crimes and to listen to the victims. And that has happened through consecutive reports also from the Secretary General to the Security Council. And that's good, but we still see that the problem prevails. Mm -hmm. And um, as we used to say, you know, those crimes can be commanded, condoned or condemned. And I think, unfortunately, they, they are condoned still and uh, exist in so many of the conflicts and wars that we see today. So we have not been able to fight it effectively. And you feel the first measure, though, is at least to acknowledge it. Yeah, absolutely. And and to ask women and to make sure that these crimes are are reported uh, properly. And that, of course, can mean that the statistics will go up initially, but it means that they feel it's worth it to share their stories because this has also meant that the shame has fallen not on the perpetrator but on the victim throughout history. Especially with rape and pregnancy that results exactly. from it. And now I think it has developed also into a debate about what do we do with the children that are born from rape. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's about time that we also address that particular challenge and, and problem. At the beginning you said feminism doesn't always have a good connotation for everyone. Tell me why you think so. No, I mean, in some countries, they interpret it and, well, they, I think, I guess, those who decide or are in, in power or mostly men also think that this means that we don't like men or that we are against men. And their interpretation of, of this word or definition of this word is not uh, correct. So very often we have to start by explaining what it means. But I, I think that's a good thing. Um, it, it helps us to put this sort of in the spotlight and create a concept that I hope others will, will use uh, as well. And especially now when we see this backlash towards the women's movement and, and women always being attacked and under pressure, also by these autocrats, unfortunately, that we see taking power around the world. And what they have in common is that they don't like women or that they want to control women. 
Are you heartened by the rise of women's anger? I think this is very important, and it has to be. We have to organize ourselves as usual. We have to make sure that we we work together. But we also have to work with sort of changing men. We we need both men and women in the fight for a more democratic uh, world that respects human rights. I'm very sorry to let you run to your plane, but thank you so much for making the time to come in and talk to us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. That's Margot Wallström, Sweden's Minister for Foreign Affairs. And if you happen to be catching this episode not on March 8th, don't worry. March is also Women's History Month. To that end, we want to play a little bonus segment today. A few weeks ago, you might remember we introduced you to the podcast Seeking Peace, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace and Security. In one of their latest episodes, host Melan Verveer discusses gender equality in the military with Major General Kristen Lund. Major Lund is the highest ranking female commander in the United Nations. When you joined the military, General Lund, were you treated differently? Did you feel that you belonged? Was it was it very hard as a woman to be in this space? Yeah, it, it was hard. And I'm quite sure very many that started early, you know, in the end of the 70s, 80s, uh, you know, they had to work as hard, do as uh, dub- twice as good as job as, as your male colleague. You couldn't fail. Um, and also sometimes when you were, you know, on one maneuver, I was the only one with, uh, and there was 6,000 men. And then you become a kind of a mascot instead of, you know, they treat you uh, like you are an egg, you know, and, and are, you are not treated the same way. And, of course, uh, I have heard so many times that, well, you have been uh, you have been a quota or a quota to get in. That was always used against us, that, you know, why should you be here? Uh, because everybody was thinking about the physical strength instead of what you have between your ears. I, I remember once reading about an incident in the Balkans when you were uh, operations officer... As I recall, you had to evacuate the headquarters in Sarajevo. It was not a happy Easter in Sarajevo. You were leading a convoy in the midst of uh, shelling. In recent days, the people of Sarajevo have been subjected to artillery and mortar attacks by Serbian militiamen and the regular Yugoslav, mainly Serbian army. This was the, not the last, but the second last uh, convoy out of Sarajevo in 1992. And as a, a woman, you know, you like to have it nice around you. So I uh, have bought a lot of uh, plants to actually plant in our headquarters um, to make it nice. But we had to evacuate because of all the shelling. And, um, and then I didn't want to leave all the plants because we were not able to get all our equipment that was kind of another staging area that we couldn't reach. So we had some room in our car. So my car uh, with the deputy uh, commander of the unit was then filled up in, in the back with a lot of plants, green plants and some uh, nice baskets. And then um, he was so angry and said, you know, you cannot bring that, you know, you know but we have space. So I just did. I also picked a female driver, and then we started. And, uh, and you know, the first checkpoint we got to, they kind of leaned down and, and asked. And, and, of course, you have learned uh, some of the language just to say, uh, you know, good morning and so on. And uh, 
they looked into the car and saw this uh, grumpy guy sitting in the backseat with a lot of uh, plants and flowers around and they started laughing and they just waved us through. That happened more or less in every checkpoint. And first of all, just to have the two females in the front was good and this uh, guy, but in the end of the, uh, on the trip, he also realized that these plants um, was a big effect. So uh, then he was more kind of taking care of them and said, no, don't drive too fast. You know, the plants are, are, uh, can break, you know. So it was quite uh, nice and, and to see that uh, uh, he understood that it is possible to have other ways of doing things. That was Mela and Verveer speaking with Major General Kristen Lund in the podcast Seeking Peace, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. Our podcast, First Person, is a production of Foreign Policy. It's produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host. <laughs>